Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Michael, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm okay. I'm I'm watching with bated breath what's going on over there. I've had to stop watching because it's just too tense and I can't, I can't bear it anymore. How are you holding up? How are you finding it all? Oh, I have no idea. I'm just going to hope for a positive outcome, uh, which is still okay. Uh, could happen because as they say it's not over till it's over amen and i think that's now, a good I, outlook I, to have yeah well you have to you have to look at everything like that or else you know i would go insane which i don't intend on doing so now um i'm on my iphone <clears throat> excuse me and i am on um speaker lovely how is the sound it sounds good. It sounds clear. It sounds like you're in a nice, quiet space as well. Um, yeah. I'm gonna, let me just close the door here. No worries. They are doing a little bit of handiwork next door to me, which was the reason I was just trying to jump in on the call whilst we could. So if you do hear some banging and soaring, um, please don't be distracted by that. We'll just power through, and hopefully it won't interfere too much. Okay, so um, let me know when we're beginning. 
Oh, we're in it, mate. We'll start from here, and uh, and okay. we'll we'll just hit, we'll just hit the ground running. I guess okay. I, I don't want to linger too long on politics, but I would like to ask you before we get into the amazing story of your life. I just wanted to hear firsthand from yourself what the last four years have been like with somebody like Trump in office, who's you know obviously such a bigot and a mean spirited seemingly horrible person um with some pretty horrible views how's how's your life and your community been impacted and affected by you know donald trump as president over the last four years could you give us a an insight into what life with trump has been like uh i will i'll only if we if you really feel like that's how you want to start this interview uh, all I can tell you is I am not a fan of his at all. I don't think he is a good being. Um, and uh, I, I'm not one to talk about politics, so I just would prefer to go on. Uh, as for the election, that we are still hearing about uh, votes coming in in certain states. Uh, I will say uh, that I am hopeful that... Uh, the, the remainder of the um, votes that are coming in are blue, and I, I hope uh, we uh, get uh, a new administration in the White House. Well, let's talk about New York City then, um, an area which I've always been fascinated with and an area which has been the birthplace and the the breeding ground of so much incredible art and music um, and culture and fashion and cinema and photography. And it really is like a hub of all of those things. You were there for some of the greatest artistic movements of our time um, with the key players of that time. And I'd love to get a first-hand account, um, first of all, from a childhood point of view, what it was like as a young kid growing up in that city and being exposed to everything that was going on at that time when you were young and then falling in love with art and music and photography and fashion and, and everything there at that point. Put us in the picture of New York back in the day. Sure. I was a um, teenager. I started coming into the city, New York City, from Brooklyn, um, I guess when I was 15 or 16 years old. So that puts us in around 1975, 1976. Um, I was the person who always loved music. Uh, like I say in the beginning of my memoir, I believe that I came out of the womb loving music. Uh, I would watch a lot of television, and on the TV, there were at least three music programs that I gravitated to. One was Dick Clark's American Bandstand. One was uh, Don Cornelius' Soul Train. There was Don Kirshner's um, Midnight Special. And all of those television programs um, were not heavily formatted just like the radio wasn't heavily formatted in the 70s. So we got to hear an array of artists from, uh, let's say, David Bowie to Aretha Franklin, um, Todd Rundgren to Archie Bell and the Drells. I mean, and the list could go on. So at a very early age, my listening of music had, was uh, like that. I just heard so many different styles of music 
and I just gravitated towards a lot of different music. On Saturday afternoons, I would come into Manhattan, into the East Village, to visit my dad uh, on Astor Place. Uh, he worked for IBM back then. There was a little international newsstand on the corner, and I remember people talking about a newspaper that came out weekly called The Village Voice. The Village Voice featured music, art, theater, politics, pornography, and um, so I picked, I think back then it was maybe it cost a dollar, uh, the newspaper, and uh, I gravitated towards everything in there except politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I paid attention to what was going on in politics, but, you know, as a teenager, that, that wasn't my focus. My focus, it was music, and I guess I could say porno. Um, I loved that there was a section for music where you could find out what bands were playing on a nightly basis, and I gravitated towards places like Maxis, Kansas City, and uh, CBGB, sometimes Great Gildersleeves. Uh, there were punk bars on Avenue A, and... Um, I would take the train into the city late at night. Back then, the city was uh, dangerous. They called uh, that part of the city Fear City. <laughs> um, you know, when, you, when you're when you a young kid taking the train by yourself and you're this petite little thing that, you know, you're 15, 16, you look like you're 12. And I had my knapsack with me with my Minolta camera. And I would just make my way to the Bowery. And the Bowery was very dangerous. It was filled with crime and um, homeless people. Uh, sometimes you have to even walk over some of the bodies, and that's no exaggeration. But I, for some strange reason, I had no fear because I just wanted to go where the music was. And I did that my whole entire life. So I know I might have went off on a tangent. There is so much to say because I really get... I didn't give you the answer yet that you were looking for because I didn't really paint the color of what New York was like. Um, I gravitated towards CBGB because they had an array of artists there. Again, we were seeing and hearing um, bands that were up and coming, like the Patti Smith Group, Television, Blondie, Talking Heads. Um, there were weekends when the Dead Boys from Youngstown, Ohio, came into the city. They wound up being one of my favorite bands. They were reminiscent from what I heard about the Stooges. Uh, also in the East Village, art galleries were being opened. Gracie Mansion. Patty Astor had um, the Fun Gallery. Uh, there were so many artists up and coming then that you could see the writing, literally the writing on the wall when you saw the tag SAMO, S-A-M-O which was the uh, Jean-Michel Bastiat and his cohort, his partner in crime, Al Diaz. They would paint that all over the place. I don't know if I would say Jean-Michel was actually a graffiti artist. He was an extraordinary painter, one of my favorite painters to this day. I loved that Bastiat's imagery looked like a child's handwriting. It looked like hieroglyphics from the Egyptian age. It spoke to being young and black in the United States. And I just responded to that. Also at that point in time, the fabulous Keith Haring 
was up and coming, very young. He was painting also his his brand of almost childlike characters on the subway system, and he was forever getting <laughs> arrested. There was a third person there who I um, knew personally and uh, loved for all those years named Richard Hamilton. He was a Canadian artist that moved to New York very early on. And what he was known for were these black shadow men that he would paint on the walls. And they had an incredible energy, these black figures. And they would almost startle you if you turned a corner real late at night and saw, and you saw one of these images. Uh, he painted those images in Dusseldorf, Paris, London, Toronto, New York City. Um, Keith and Basquiat wound up dying at a very early age. Richard um, was, an, was an extraordinary uh, junkie for a very long time, but he continued to paint those shadow men and landscapes, and they were delicious. They were awesome. One day he needed money for, I guess, uh, you know what, and uh, I knew um, he wasn't in a good space mentally. So I gave him $300, and he made one of those shadow men directly on the wall of my living room, and it's an extraordinary piece. Um, so that's what was happening early on in the East Village in New York City, um, when I was hanging out at a very young age. And all of that stuff soon became international. The artists, the, um, the musicians all wound up getting their first record deals probably out of CBGB. Um, so it was a very vibrant time. And I literally, I don't know why my mom let me go out every night, but I guess it was because I was doing well in school. Um, I, I, was, I literally, I was out every single night hearing music. And uh, it was an extraordinary time period. I even loved the theater. And so I would look up the theater guide in the Village Boys. There was a gay publication that cost $1.25 called After Dark. And it, um, it was about New York. It was about the theater. It was about dance companies. And um, I would read that, too, because they had very uh, promiscuous photos of, like, actors and dancers who were half-dressed. So, of course, that appealed to my sensibility. Um, but now I think I have gone off for a long period of time here, um, unless uh, you think I forgot something or whatever that your next question is. Here I am. Love it. Well, the thing to bear in mind with podcasts, particularly with my show, Michael, is there are no tangents. And, and that is exactly the, you know, the stuff that I want to hear, the local description and character and flavor of the place and and just hearing you reminisce in that way is is well it it was it was dirty sexy and fabulous there you go <laughs> well here's something i'd be really interested to know because i gather it was all of those things and more and it yep. would have taken a specific frame of mind for a young person to have the courage um and the the interest to want to go out and explore the city late at night do you think you know, looking back, where that came from, this bravery, this hunger, this appetite, this confidence, all of these things that were clearly in you and instilled so strongly? Do you know where they came from, or were, were you just like that as a kid? I was, I was like that as a young child. I was always curious. I just had a curiosity. Um, and it didn't take me far in Brooklyn. 
Um, sure, there. I, I lived up mostly on uh, for a long period of time on a dead end street. Uh, there were a lot of different uh, types of families that lived there, but you know, it was just kind of ordinary until, like I said, I knew there was a scene happening in New York City, and I managed to find again the Village Voice, and um, I was just curious. I wanted to know about everything. I wanted to fill my mind with whatever was out there. And some of the early shows which you must have seen, you mentioned that a lot of bands became internationally renowned. They all began in these clubs like CBGBs. You were going there. Uh, I presume you must have seen like all, uh, or if not all, most of like early shows by bands like the Ramones, for instance. You were probably oh, there well, for all I, of them. I, from, from, <laughs> from the get-go in 1975, uh, when I probably saw like one of their first shows, you know, they were young, we were all young, and they were a band that played so fast that they could play about 25 songs in 17 minutes. And that was the truth. And that was their whole entire set. And after I saw them for the first time, I just continued to see them until they stopped performing in the 90s. Um, I also became friends with a, a gentleman named Arturo Vega. Arturo was the man who... Um, conceived their love that that Ramones logo. He was also their creative director. He was their lighting designer and he was with them over thirty years. God rest his soul. Arturo passed in um I think June eighth of two thousand hmm, I'm not sure. Two thousand let's see, thirteen. Yeah, maybe probably about two thousand thirteen. Um so yeah I saw the very early shows of the Patti Smith group. Um, it was incredible when Hilly Crystal, the owner, knew to bring bands from the UK over here. So I got to see bands like um, Death School, Eddie and the Hot Rods. Uh, there were three nights of The Damned and the Dead Boys. Um, it, was, it was an extraordinary time. And I was just the young kid who wanted to eat up all that music. And I did. The Dead Boys were your particular favorite. Is that safe to say? I love the Dead Boys as they as their first album was titled Young, Loud, and Snotty. <laughs> and they were certainly that. I always thought that Sid Vader, the lead singer, was the bastard child of Iggy Pop on stage. You know, he would beat himself up on stage. He was a wild man on stage. And he definitely had a certain charisma about him that made you want to listen. And their first two albums, Young, Loud, and Snotty, and We Have Come For Your Children, are two albums that I uh, go back to all the time. And they never feel dated to me at all. It's just extraordinary music. When you were at these shows, were a lot of the artists and filmmakers and, and contemporaries from outside of music, were they at these gigs as well, all hanging out together? Was it a melting pot just across the board of artistic, creative people? Uh, I would say it was across the board, uh, different types, artistic people. I mean, one night, uh, Brian Eno was there to see the student teachers. Uh, there were so many different types of there were painters and uh, filmmakers. You know, Amos Poe was there. Uh, 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 let's see. Yeah, it was really an across the board. I think, you know what? I think everybody, young filmmakers, young artists, young painters, everyone was curious also 
about CBGB and what was it that was happening there. And it was the beginning of the punk rock movement. And um, it was just, like I said, extraordinary times. Have you ever thought about why at that point in time New York was this explosion of creativity? Was it just that it was affordable for creatives to live there? Was there, was there something deeper or more magical in the air? Like what, what was going on that made that the hub and the center of everything right. at that time? Because mm-hmm. it wasn't just rock and roll either, was it? There was disco and hip-hop and street art. and Well, you know, when you live in New York, it was always like this little joke. It's so good. New York is so good that they named it twice. New York, New York. <laughs> and ain't, ain't that the truth? Um, I think people from very early times knew that New York was a special place. And I, I don't know. I think right this minute talking to you, I find it hard to explain why the punk movement uh, happened. I think young people uh, wanted an outlet for music. They were, I don't know, like it just happened. And once people started hearing about, oh, there were these young bands who play what they're calling punk rock uh, in New York City. And that was everybody, like I mentioned, from the Dead Boys to Suicide. um, And people just wanted to hear it. Other bands wanted to emulate that sound. So there was all, you know, as a young person, there's always, you always, there are always people who want to be in a rock and roll band. And uh, some of them make it and some of them don't, but they always give it a good try. Um, yeah. So I think that explosion was just, a, you know, a wonderful thing and it lasted for a good period of time. And like anything in life, it, it, it comes to an, an end. And then also, uh, you know, um, other forms of music become popular. You know, in the 80s, there was lots of heavy metal. Um, of course. All of those, those hair bands on the Sunset Strip, which I could have cared less about. <laughs> um, so there's, you know, there's always, um, it's always like a roller coaster of styles that come and go and uh, that capture people's hearts. And isn't it great that we just don't repeat ourselves for the most part? Well, you were at the front line for thrash metal as well. Obviously, you famously signed Metallica to Elektra. And, uh, I mean, that movement was, again, this underground thing that became the main dominant form of that genre for a good period. And Metallica now, obviously, the biggest metal band in the world still. Um, Sure. What an exciting scene that must have been as well as hardcore kind of came and went and then thrash was coming too. Again, New York was was the center and the hub of a lot of that stuff. I know Metallica were from the Bay Area, but there was obviously, you know, Anthrax and the scene at Lemoore's in New York as well. Uh, what was it about metal that drew you? Was it the speed and the aggression and the energy? Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, uh, I, I would guess thrash started in around 1983 um, New York, in New York City and, like you said, in the Bay Area of San Francisco. Um, I love the energy. I love the young men who play that kind <laughs> of music. I loved, uh, I loved the sweat. I loved how um, fast it was. I loved that it was not uh, like a stand, any kind of like 
standard type of music. It was, um, it was just different. It was different. And, you know, I wound up signing out of all those groups. I wound up signing Metallica with about 36 years ago to Elektra. And I signed them because when I first saw them at Lemoore in Brooklyn, I was still booking the nightclub, the Ritz in the East Village on, on East 11, I'm sorry, on East 11th Street in the East Village. And I, I, my idea was to book them at the Ritz. That never happened. But what, I, what happened was I saw these four young, extraordinary men who were doing something so different that eventually it was going to make the difference. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I just noticed like that they were all so wildly charismatic that your eye just darted to each of them on the stage and that the singer, James Hetfield, was a natural-born ringleader up there. He knew how to whip a crowd into a frenzy, get them excited, and it, it, there was always extraordinary inter, there was extraordinary interaction between James and the audience. I saw them again in, uh, at the Stone in San Francisco in 1983 when I had just started at Electra Records, and I knew that I wanted to sign them. They were on another label, a small independent label called Megaforce, fabulous up and coming label as well. We were all up and coming back then, yeah, yeah. Um, and in our in our early twenties. Um, and, um, you know, to make a long story short, because I've told this story for 30 years, you could read about it in my book, I Am Michael Alago. But the long and short of it was that, um, you know, Megaforce didn't have the funds to finance this band to get them to where I really felt I, I could take them because I worked for a corporation. Electro Records had a history of signing things that were that different from the Doors, the MC5 and the Stooges. And here I am bringing in Metallica in the summer of 1984. There was a deal worked out between the business affairs people at Megaforce and the business affairs people at Electra. And as they say, the rest is history. From the get-go, I always felt in my heart that in my soul that these guys were going to be effing huge. And I was uh, definitely correct in that assumption. And um, here we are talking about them in 2020. And if it wasn't for this damn pandemic, I'm sure they'd be out there playing stadiums and 20,000 seaters. And um, they are as good as they have ever been right now. You talk in the book as well about seeing White Zombie early on, wanting to sign them almost, <laughs> almost straight away. And you talk about Rob Zombie's onstage presence and energy in a similar way. It's funny, isn't it, yeah. Al? Is it clear, you know, for you as somebody with an eye for this stuff, sometimes you just see people and they're innate stars, like already in waiting. People like James, yeah. people like Rob. Do they? What is it yeah. that they have? Is it just that X Factor thing that everybody like wants, but you can't teach, you can't learn it? You've either got it or you haven't. Yep, you said it. Um, you know, I felt like you know here I was an A and R person, and I had to be very excuse me, I had to be very discerning about what I was going to find. I listened to cassettes every darn day, morning, noon, and night. Now I heard a lot of terrible stuff. I heard a lot of good stuff. And I would never hear great stuff coming out of those cassettes. That, the great stuff wound up coming to me when an artist uh, stopped by my office, a publisher, uh, a lawyer, a manager. Um, and I knew as an A&R executive, I couldn't sign things that were just good. 
because I'd be overwhelming the system. Um, greatness to me, right, and like you said, you know, you can't buy charisma. You can't buy that X factor. You either have it in you or you don't. So now moving on to Rob Zombie, my friend Daniel Ray, who worked with the Ramones for many, many years, record producer, well, there were three young bands he was shopping, Circus of Power, Raging Slab, and White Zombie. He got Raging Slab and White Zombie, I mean, he got Raging Slab and Circus of Power signed to RCA Records, and nobody watched him. <laughs> White Zombie. So, of course, he said to me, Michael, this is the band for you. So one night in the East Village, once again, because we were always in the East Village, we um, went to some little bar. It was just a box. It was like a black box. It was under a very um, shishi restaurant called Indochine. And we went into this little box and we went all the way to the back of the room. And the stage couldn't have been more than not even a foot high off the ground. And here were these young people sweating and with dreadlocks and making this fucking, oh, excuse me. Um, uh, it's all good. You can say whatever you want. If you want to swear, you can swear. No, it's okay. I try not to these days, but it inevitably comes out of my mouth. <laughs> so they are playing, they're making this noise that for some reason my ears related to. And I watch again, you know, here I am seeing another performer who is wild on stage. And um, I don't think they had songs. They had these riffs that were potent riffs but they didn't go anywhere, really. And I still thought to myself, oh, my God, I love these people. So when it was over, <clears throat> excuse me, I introduced myself to Rob, and I said, um, you know, my name is Michael Lago. I work for Geffen Records, and uh, I think we need to work together. And he said, really? Because nobody else wants to work with us. I said, that's okay, because I don't, I, you know, I am the leader. I'm not following other people. I don't follow other A&R people. So at some point, uh, I did demos with them. And um, they knew in their heart of hearts what they had to do to make it. Rob was a very smart cookie. And at one point, he said to me, Michael, you know what? I think White Zombie is going to be big. And I'm also going to make films. And you know what? I believed Rob. And um, again, the rest is history. But I'll tell you a good fun story. I wound up signing them. We there was a Slayer record that we loved the sound of that Andy Wallace produced. So um, we hired Andy to produce their first album, uh, La Sexorcista, Devil Music, Volume One. So many things happened in the making of that record. I called the film director Russ Meyer, famous for his movies like Lorna and Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. You know he was the king of putting women in his films with big boobs and you know the women were smart and the muscled men were stupid and he was famous and he was fabulous Russ Meyer so I called Russ Meyer because Rob loved the line from Faster Pussycat that said get up and kill and that was in the day of early sampling and you know people who were sampling people like James Brown without asking there were lawsuits now so um, I found the number to, to Russ Meyer's um, studio, 
And I called and I said, oh, Matt, please speak to Mr. Meyer. And he said, this is he. I said, oh, hello, my name is Michael Alago, and I work for Geffen Records. He said, what do you want? I'm sitting here with a double hernia, and I really don't want to be bothered. Brilliant. He said, but wait a minute. Did you say you work for Mr. David Geffen? I said, I do. He said, do you think he wants to give me a quarter of a million dollars so I could finish up the valley of the ultraviction? I said, well, Mr. Meyer, I don't know about that. That is not the reason I was calling. He said, then what do you want? I said, I signed a young band out of New York called White Zombie. We want to sample a line from Faster Pussycat. He said, how much are you paying me? I said, $1,000. He said, when are you paying me? I said, soon. So then, you know, we were sending back then, we were still sending things like um, faxes. So I faxed him a one sheet to sign. And, um, you know, I got him paid within three days and he was very happy. But he liked my energy, and we stayed friends and wrote letters back and forth to each other for a long time until he passed away, unfortunately. He was delightful. You know, we also tried to get Vincent Price to, to do a little monologue on the White Zombie record, um, but he said he had such a nightmare recording Michael Jackson's Thriller that he never wanted to do that again. When we finally convinced him, he was having dementia and all sorts of things that never came to be. The record comes out. I tell everybody at Geffen Records it's going to be a million seller. It stalls at 180,000 units. And at one marketing meeting, everyone looks at me like, well, what do you have to say for yourself now? Well, you know what? For some, you know, sometimes um, there is uh, magic that happens in the air. Sometimes the unexpected happens. And that's what happened in this case. I didn't even really have to give them an answer. You know, of course, I thought about it until the next marketing meeting. And what happens? It's the beginning of MTV. There's a show called Beavis and Butthead. And Beavis and Butthead decide that White Zombie are their new favorite band. So what happens is every night they would play uh, the single, uh, Thunder Kiss 65. And that show helped catapult that album to a million units. So it was like, expect the unexpected. You never know where some kind of marketing idea is gonna come from. We didn't even have to think about it. It was because, um, you know, these two little idiotic characters decided that this was their band and MTV played that single relentlessly. So you never know where, 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 where some goodness uh, is gonna happen for you. It's funny, isn't it? They were almost like the hipster tastemakers of their day, Beavis and Butthead, yes. <laughs> weren't they? Believe it, believe it or not. <laughs> what about the end of White Zombie? What signaled the end of that band for you? Obviously, they then morphed into Rob's solo career and his filmmaking career. Um, were you around for the end of the band? Did you see that go down? Do you know what happened? Well, I think what happened was they made two fabulous albums. Um Devil Music, uh, Volume 1, and Astro Creep 2000. And, you know, I think Rob just felt like um, he wanted to do uh, a little bit, uh, stylistically, a little bit uh, music that was a bit more, a bit differently from White Zombie. And he just felt like he wanted to be a front person. So it's really sometimes plain, as plain and simple as that. He, you know, the ego sometimes gets in the way, of course. Um, but that's okay. Um, 
they made two records. People love them for those two records. And then, you know, Rob becomes a solo artist. He becomes a fantastic filmmaker. And um, here we are talking about him right now. And I believe he just dropped a single uh, just the other day. I haven't seen or heard it yet. Um, but, uh, you know, he's out there rocking and rolling and making fabulous music. And uh, he's an extraordinary uh, creative being. So, like I said, I don't think anything happened except, you know, Sometimes it's just time to move on. You don't necessarily have to make five or six albums with, with a band and then decide, oh, we've had enough. Rob had enough after two albums and that was that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You were obviously still very close with the guys and working with them in Metallica um, when Cliff passed. And you talk in the well, book... You talk in the book sure. about how they discussed ending Metallica after his death uh, because it hit them that hard. Um, when you were around with those guys at that time, it must have been an incredibly painful, difficult time for them. How did they, as a band, move forward and pick up the pieces and, and carry on? Sure, 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 sure. Uh, I signed them in summer of 84. Uh, they were finishing up um, Ride the Lightning. Um, that's where I picked them up from. And, uh, you know, everybody's, uh, they're on the road. Um, people are talking about them because uh, they were uh, the kings of the underground metal scene. Uh, everybody was excited that they got signed to a major. But what the beauty of all that was, and I'll just digress for a second, was, you know what? At that same point in time, everyone was looking for a thrash band. And thank God there were lots of them out there. And they were good. They were some of them were great. So Anthrax got signed to Island. Raven got signed to Atlantic Records. Uh, Slayer got signed to Death Jam, and everybody wound up finding a home. So uh, moving right along, um, I just signed them in '84. Uh, um, in '85, they start to make 
um, their first full length, really, for Alexa, uh, entitled Master of Puppets. An extraordinary record. A game changer. Another level. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah, I was just saying a game changer of an album. Oh, I thought you said I can't hear you. See, I can't hear myself. Oh, it was an absolute game changer. You know, from from Kill 'em All to Ride the Lightning to uh, Master of Puppets, uh, musically, they, they, they were so smart. They always knew, even when they were called Alcoholica, they knew what they wanted to do. They didn't need help from nobody. They were very, very smart young men who musically just were, you know, the songs were just maturing every step of the way. So Master of Puppets comes uh, out. At some point, Sharon Osbourne calls us and wants uh, wants to know if they could open the Aussie tour. Of course, we say yes. It will be some of the biggest venues that they ever perform in. So we will fast forward a little. Uh, I believe it's summer of 86 and uh, specifically September. And uh, at the end of September, either, uh, gosh, the 25th or the 26th. And um, I get a phone call very early on a Saturday morning. And it's um, Cliff Bernstein from Q Prime Management, Metallica's management company. He said, Michael, I don't know how to tell you this. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, right now because it was, uh, you know, 34 years ago. He said, I have some bad news. Uh, Cliff was killed last night. I I just sat there. I was stunned. I, I don't think I said anything for a moment. All of a sudden, my heart started racing. I started pacing around in my apartment. I started to cry. And I thought, this is really just it's surreal. This can't be. He said, I know it's very, very bad news. And um, I just wanted to tell you this first. And uh, but if you want, let's talk over the weekend and uh, go from there. I mean, this was horrible. You have to remember, we were all young people in our early 20s. Now, they were in a they the four of them were in a band together. They were brothers. And I don't think they any of them had had this kind of extraordinary loss before. So. You know, listen, we were all a fucking mess. We were all a mess. And then once the word got out, West Coast, East Coast, Europe, everyone who loved Cliff, everyone, the whole world was in mourning. And, you know, I think as young people, sometimes you don't know what to do with that grief because it's so heavy and you've never had that kind of like, grief before, I guess, unless you've lost, uh, you know, a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister, a parent, and they lost their brother. So everybody was a mess. Uh, Monday morning, I get to work and I call the meeting, letting everyone know that what happened. And, you know, you know what, you're not thinking like, oh, so what's gonna happen now? I, you know, I think everyone is just in a state of shock. So at some point, maybe that day or a couple days later, you know, Lars was the one that I've always spoke to on the phone. And he was like the motor mouth who I absolutely adore to this day. And um, I mean, I had to say, you know, hon, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. 
about Cliff. And you know, it's always it always moves me to this day because what I imagine, and this is just my own little personal opinion, that if, if Cliff was still alive, man, he'd be making solo albums. Uh, he'd be making, you know, these extraordinary innovative records where every other musician would want to be on his record. You know, he made me think of Jaco Pastorius from Weather Report and how unique and innovative he was. Anyway, uh, so uh, back to that week, that horrible week where all over the world people were talking about the death of our beloved Cliff Burton. You know, the, um, I think the band did some interviews. I was getting phone calls from all over the world talking about Cliff. And the band just, you know, you don't know what you want to do at that point in time because you are reeling from the shock and the visual of what happened to you in Sweden in the middle of the night when the bus slips on black ice and your beloved buddy, your friend, your fellow musician, your brother gets killed. Can you imagine that, Matt? It's heavy duty, isn't it? Heavy. Heavy duty is correct. So, uh, I don't remember at some point right after that. I know I went to the to the services on the West Coast. Uh, we Everybody, I think the boys in Anthrax were there and exited. And you never saw so many young... <laughs> young men crying and talking about someone who was young and funny and smart and an extraordinary human being. The language that was used to describe Cliff was just beautiful. So at some point, uh, I have a conversation with Lars and he says, you know, Michael, we have to move on. We have to move forward. It's tough. We don't know like when and how this was all going to happen, but we have to do it. We have to do it for ourselves and we have to do it for the love of Cliff. And I agreed with them um, that, you know, they were doing extraordinary work out there. So he said, can you help us find a bass player? I said, absolutely. Now, never mind that I had just signed Jason Newstead's band, Flossum and Jetsum, to Electra Records. Um, and I thought to myself, here is another young person with extraordinary talent, with extraordinary energy on stage, who is just as wild and charming and charismatic as the, as the young guys in Metallica. And then there was somebody I was also friends with named Phil Cavano, who was in a band back then called Blitzbeer. And um, fast forward, he's currently and still in a band called Monster Magnet. So Phil goes out to uh, audition. Um, and I su also suggest Jason to Lars. At the same time, Brian Flagel from Metal Blade suggests Jason. So now, of course, Lars is hearing about him from two different places, from people I can safely say he respects. So Jason goes out there and wows them, and he gets the job. And that doesn't come with um, a certain sense of, uh, well, how do you say this delicately, uh, 
they basically tortured Jason for the first couple years of him being in Metallica. Now, I believe, in my own humble opinion, that that torturing was still them not knowing how to grieve properly. So they took out their grief on Jason. Yep. I think at some point we all understood that. It was talked about. And um, then after those first couple of years, he really was a solid member of the band. And I think if my number is correct, he was probably with them for about 15 years. And he was a beautiful compliment to our lost, beloved Cliff on stage. And Jason's in the movie as well as the Metallica guys. So obviously those friendships for you, the same with Rob and Sean as well from Zombie, like whatever happens within the band dynamics and whatever paths those musicians take, you've seemed to have remained friends with, with all of them across the board, which is a beautiful thing. Yes, and please don't forget my beloved John Lydon. Like I said, yep. in 2020, I know John 39 years, and we've never had a bad word with each other. I signed him to Electra in 1985. I wound up having to drop him in 1986. He had a very, 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 very expensive deal. The album sales were not what we thought they were going to be, and I had no say in it. Corporate wound up, uh, let it, you know, when, when, when that time came around and we were looking at uh, record sales, I just had to let him go. He said, I'm a realist. I understand. And he said to me and Jeff, I know you dropped me because all you care about is Metallica. And you know what? That, that's the worst that it ever got between John and I. So, you know, in my documentary, Who the Fuck Is That Guy, which is currently on Amazon Prime, uh, John is in the movie as well. And, you know, I just wound up, I always had good relationships with artists because I always told the truth whether they wanted to hear the truth or not. You know, I understood the music that I was signing. I didn't sign things because, oh my God, other people are going to get interested in this. I signed artists because in my heart, I believed in the music. I never followed other A&R people because I just felt like if I didn't believe in the music, how could I live with myself? So, um, yeah, it was really wonderful when I asked all, Cindy Lauper, who I uh, executive produced two albums for, when I asked the zombie people, the Metallica people, uh, even Phil Anselmo, one of my all-times, I'm in love with Phil Anselmo from Pantera. What's the connection there, Michael? Did you work with Pantera, or did you just know I, Phil as a friend? I knew him because I loved his band. We, I, we met a couple of times. We got along famously, and when it came time, you know, I, I love him and his wife, Kate, and, you know, it just happened when it came time, and I said, darling, will you be in my documentary? He didn't even, he, yes, yes, I want to be in your film. So, you know, that's the kind of relationships I have with artists, you know. I really love the music, and, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just, uh, people like me, and I like them. <laughs> and life winds up working out and, and it's a beautiful thing it's really nice for me as well because to see someone like you who you know is is really aligned and behind and loyal to and loves these sometimes difficult controversial problematic figures like john <laughs> like 
like Phil Anselmo. Um, for me, people who, like all of us, have made mistakes. But I love the fact that, and I feel the same way about people that I come into contact with in my line of work as well. Mm-hmm. It's sure. like it's like you see them for their true character, the true essence of who they are, not what the headline is. Correct. And you know what? Listen, man, we are human beings. We have faults. And, you know, underneath that, like when, when somebody said, well, what did you think about all that stuff with Bill Anselmo back in the day and whatever it was, white power, you know? Sometimes we fall. Sometimes we drink too much. But that doesn't, that didn't tell me that that was the essence of who Phil was then and is now. He is an extraordinary character. He, again, is a, once again, is a great front man. He is dedicated to his friends and family. And um, he's beloved. And there's a reason for that. So, you know, we all fall down, but if you're not inherently a bad person, then you know what? We support those people. And obviously as well with everything that he must have gone through with losing Dime in the way that he did, you know, talk about well, the pain Can of you that. imagine two of your band members? You know, I can't speak for him at all, but only from afar when I heard that news, I was totally blown away. Again, you know, the world of music, the world of heavy metal, were put in a situation like, wait a minute, what the fuck? How did this happen? How are they going to go on? You know, what's next? We don't know, you know? And so, you know, we mourn once again. How content and at peace and happy are you in your life now? And how much of a role has sobriety had in that? Because I got the sense <laughs> from reading your book that although yes. you, you had an incredible time and a great run and a lot of fun and a lot of advent sure. and a lot of adventures, uh, there ca- there came a time when you had to hang those party boots up and you Ooh, know it, enjoy a different pace of life. And and it sounds like from you know the way you talk about the world and your interactions with it now in the book that you really are in a good place because of that clarity and sobriety and health. Sure. Um, well, you know this might again this might be just a tad long winded. You know I loved my life in the music business. I did A and R for twenty five years. At some point in time, I contracted HIV. And at some point in time after that, I had full-blown AIDS. When there was no medication out, I was deathly ill. I almost died. I had an extraordinary doctor. Her name was Barbara Starrett. She was on the front lines of medicine. She was in the laboratories uh, figuring stuff out. And, um, you know, she had, this is the beginning of the the, the the AIDS pandemic, never mind the 2020 pandemic we're going through now. She would come to my house every, she would ride her bicycle to my house every morning at five o'clock in the morning before she did her rounds at St. Vincent's. Because you know what? She just, there was something in her that she really liked me. And I appreciated that my doctor, when she had to service hundreds of men and some women who were dying from AIDS, she would come and visit me every morning. And I, there were no medicine. So in one arm, I had IVs filled with vitamin drips. And because I had pneumonia, there was a medicine called pantamidine. I had that hooked up to my left arm. And I was a mess. I was a mess. Um, a year later, I was still a mess. She said there's a, 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 um, there's a, a medication coming out called AZT. Uh, but I'm gonna, that's uh, FDA approved. 
I'm going to just say to you, Michael, I don't want you to take it. I said, Barbara, you're keeping me alive. I'm going to do whatever you tell me. AZT wound up killing all of or most of the gay community. They didn't know how much to give someone. So if they gave them a little, nothing happened. If they gave them what they thought was the proper dose, it killed them. Barbara saved my life twice, you know. Finally, something comes out. I believe it's called sequinavir. I take it. About a year and a half later, I'm up and about. I'm probably like 90 pounds. I go back to work at Electra. I never got sick with full-blown ever again. At some, thank God. At some point in time, um, you know, I always get my blood checked every six months. My viral load is at zero. It's non-detectable in my body. I mean, that's like a, that's a blessing and it's a miracle. Fast forward. I've been clean and sober now. Um, well, you know, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, last month, October 13th, I turned 61 years old. And last month, October 21st, I had 13 years clean and sober. In, in, in living a sober life, I wake up in my own bed. I am a responsible man. I, uh, people can rely on me. Um, I do what I say I'm going to do. I show up for everything. I show up for my life. I show up for this interview. I show up for my friends and my family. And because I'm in a 12-step program that works for me, I'm here to be of service to everybody who says those little words, I need help. Because you know what? When you need help and you ask for help and you're serious about it, you get the help that you need. So I live in gratitude every single day because you know what? I wake up. I'm healthy. Um, when my mom passed, Blanche, she was 94, three years ago. I was there for her. I, you know, I, if I was drinking and drugging, I could have been a no-show. And that would have disturbed me for the rest of my life in any event. So I live in gratitude every single day. I try to be the best person that I could be. I try to be of help to anyone and everyone who needs help. And um, that's how I live my life, to be loving and kind. And I think everybody should live their life in being of service to others. When you do that, it's a domino effect. And that domino effect just helps make the world a better place. I've been thinking about that a lot recently this year, just in relation to the situation we're in worldwide. And it really is for me that whole attitude and outlook of just starting small at home with yourself and letting that positivity and, and that ripple, you know, spread out and and being there for each other and then as you say the more that happens the more you see it in effect and and the better the world is and you know for me like it has nothing to do with like being pollyanna or anything like that you know we are human beings here to just help one another to have fun with one another to love one another to give service to each other and like you said just now it's a ripple effect And I love that we're at 59 minutes and 55 seconds, and we did like a whole fabulous hour, even though I don't know if I love the beginning of this interview talking about politics, but I love (laughs) that we went on from there. And what a delight this has been. I don't know if you have any more questions. And if you don't, Matt, I think we did a great job together here, even though I may have screwed up here and there just for a moment. I think I got my point across. 
No, it was perfect. All I will say is that, you know, we should definitely do a part two. Uh, I feel like I could talk to you for days, but I do like to try and wrap it on the hour. And as you say, we're exactly at the hour now. And I guess the only reason I wanted to start with what's happening now is just because it is happening right now. And uh, I hope you don't mind that I did raise those talking points at the start. I knew that we'd get into the good stuff anyway. Right. And, and yeah, I-, I don't know if I really minded, but, you know, people don't normally ask me about politics. So I get thrown a little. I thought, you know, more so, you know, never mind just the politics. You know, we're going through a friggin' pandemic here that people don't know, like, how to behave sometimes. And, you know, the, the president of the United States uh, didn't even pay attention to this pandemic when he first heard about it in January. He told nothing to the American people about it. And so, so here, you know, people are dropping every day like flies. We have over two, probably over 250,000 people since March who have died in the United States. And, you know, there isn't an end in sight yet for COVID. And, you know, medications take some time for the FDA to approve. So what we have to do out there, again, this comes back to humanity and being kind and wearing your face covering out there. So even if you if, if you have symptoms or if you're asymptomatic, you're not spreading this to anybody else. You're paying attention. You're saving my life. You're saving your life. There are other precautions that we look to right now. We keep a six-foot physical distancing. We wash our hands. I always tell people, wash your fucking hands. (laughs) We don't know what surfaces we touch all day long. So I'm crazy about that. I wear my my face covering when I go out. I wash my hands all the time. I have, I have, I, I went psycho on, on sanitizers. So I have like 10 different sanitizers in my bathroom. And you know what? I look to keep myself healthy because I, if, you know, if AIDS didn't kill me, I can't let some friggin' pandemic kill me. And I don't want my friends to go down. So, you know, we're all paying attention. You know, just now, London, I heard London and Paris are in lockdown again. Um, listen, man. We don't know when this is going to end. There isn't an end in sight, unfortunately. So please, I'm just saying to you, to your audience, pay attention to what our healthcare professionals tell us. It's not a hoax. It's not a joke. We have to take this very, 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 very seriously. But I will say I take it seriously. I told you what I do to stay safe. And, um, you know, I love all of you out there. I want everybody to stay safe and if you're having problems with alcohol uh, ask for help um and just um i don't know i don't know where else to go so that means the listen, hour listen, listen to the experts not the politicians hey eh? that is correct thank you <laughs> and uh michael i just want to say as on a personal note what a beautiful guy you are what a, a captivating and and hugely interesting person you are what an amazing life you've had i loved the movie i loved the book oh, good. and oh, good. uh and thank you for bringing you know all these we didn't even get into nina simone we'll talk about her next time but thank- we didn't get into nina simone we didn't get into cindy lopper we didn't talk about my ex my escapades with George Lynch from Dawkins in Japan. I mean, there's so much. There's definitely, uh, maybe this summer we'll do a part two and we'll talk about lots of other things because never mind just the book, but in the next six months, I'm sure a lot of things are going to be going on and changing in the world that we know. 
Michael, thank you for a delightful talk, my friend. Thank you oh, so much. Thank you, Matt. Thank you so much. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.